Well, Tony had to say what my degree was in. Expository preaching, so no pressure, right? But like Tony said, uh, my wife's history in this church goes all the way back to when she was just a kid. And, and my history in this church goes back to 2007. That's uh, when I first came here. It's when I first walked in these doors. But, but ever since then, this church has meant a great deal to me. Obviously, I, I came here, I met my wife. But also, God really used this church to begin preparing me for the ministry that I now have. Uh, and I never would have, would have thought that at the time. And, and I certainly never would have thought that seven years ago when I walked in these doors that there would come a day where I would be standing here. Uh, so praise God for that. Um, we're going to be in Mark chapter 9 this morning. So if you have a copy of Scripture with you, I invite you to turn there. Mark chapter 9. And we're going to look at just three little verses in the Gospel of Mark. Now, if you are familiar with the Gospels, or if you've been around church for a while, maybe you know this about the Gospels, but, but there are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They are the first four books of the New Testament. And three of those Gospels are considered what we call synoptic Gospels. And the reason we call them that is, is simply because they contain many of the same stories about the life of Jesus. They, they contain a lot of the same accounts uh, the different miracles that Jesus performed, the, the people that he encountered. And so Matthew, Mark, and Luke are three synoptic Gospels. And as you read through the Gospels, you'll begin to notice that, that Mark seems to be very clear and concise. And so when Mark tells the same story that Matthew and Luke tell, he typically gives way less detail than what we find in Matthew and in Luke. Which makes sense, because if all of us here this morning were to write an account of today's events... All of them would include very different details. So we all see things from a different perspective. We all think that different details are more important than other details. And my wife tells me all of the time that anytime I tell a story, I give way too many insignificant details. Every time. We were just having lunch a couple weeks ago with our, our music minister and his wife, and, and I don't even remember the story I was telling, but, but I'm telling them this story of something that happened to us, and Sam's just like, they don't need to know that. That is insignificant to the whole point of the story. Just get to the point. And so I tend to include every detail that I possibly can because I feel that it's important. But Mark, Mark is, it tends to be more clear and concise. He's, he's straight to the point. Not, not a lot of fluff. But one thing that you'll notice in Mark's gospel, and I want to point out to you this morning, is that he does give some intricate details that, that sometimes may seem a little out of place, or, or a little like, well, why do we need to know that? And we're going to see that as we read our passage this morning. So let's look at, uh, at Mark chapter 9. We'll begin in verse 30. Mark says, They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples and saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Let's pray and ask for God's help this morning. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful to be gathered here this morning in your name. And we have come to the most important part of the service. And it's not important because I'm the one here speaking. It's important because it's, it's your word that we are now focused on. God, we ask this morning that you would free our minds of distraction, that you would help us to see with spiritual eyes, to hear with spiritual ears, and that we would have a heart to understand. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first thing that I want you to notice about our passage this morning is that John, Mark, Mark sees fit to tell us that Jesus and his disciples are on the way from one place to another. Look at verse 30 again. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. Now, if you back up to chapter 8, you can see that in verse 27 it says, Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. So now Jesus and his disciples are at Caesarea Philippi. This is the place where the transfiguration happens. They're coming down the mountain. Jesus is telling his disciples that came with him, Peter, James, and John, not to tell anyone about the, the transfiguration that they saw until the Son of Man is, is, is raised from the dead. And then we see him heal a man, or a boy rather, with an unclean spirit. 
So all of this is happening in Caesarea Philippi. But now Mark sees fit to tell us that Jesus and his disciples are now traveling on to the next place. They're traveling through Galilee. And if we look down to chapter 9, verse 33, we see that they come to Capernaum. So they're traveling. Mark wants us to know this. And now let's look at what Jesus tells them as they're traveling. So they're going on. They're passing through Galilee. He did not want anyone to know because he's teaching his disciples. And here's what he says to them. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. So here's the message that Jesus is teaching his disciples as he's traveling from Caesarea Philippi to Capernaum. The Son of Man is going to be killed and then raised again. Now, this is not the first time in Mark's gospel that Jesus foretells of his death and resurrection to his disciples. Again, let's look back at Mark chapter 8. And we'll see, beginning in verse 31, that he, he has this conversation another time. And verse 31 says, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. This is the first time that Jesus foretells of his death and resurrection to his disciples. And then our passage this morning in Mark chapter 9 is the second time. But Jesus even tells his disciples a third time the same thing. Look over in chapter 10. Look at verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem... And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. Saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him, and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him. And after three days he will rise. Now, I don't know about you, but if Jesus says something three times in a relatively short order, I think it's important and we should notice. I think there's some significance to the fact that Jesus is telling his disciples three times, I'm going to die, but have no fear, I'm also going to be raised from the dead. So this is obviously important that Jesus is is telling his disciples this information. Now, You may not have noticed as we read the three different passages, but they all have a few things in common. The first thing that they have in common is what we see in our passage today. The disciples are traveling from one place to another. I think we made that clear here in in chapter 9, but if you look back at chapter 8, verse 27, it says that Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way... He asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Now here's this conversation where some say, well, some are saying that you're Elijah, or some saying you're John the Baptist, or one of the other prophets. And Jesus bluntly asked, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter comes back with that that great confession, you are the Christ. And then, look down at verse 31. The first time that he foretells of his death and resurrection, it says he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. So this is a direct following of what has just happened. Okay, There's not a big gap in time here. There may be a paragraph break in your Bible, but this is continuing the conversation. So it starts that they're on the way. He's asking his disciples, who do people say that I am? And after that conversation, he continues into, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. And so... In the first passage, again, they are on the way, traveling from Bethsaida to Caesarea Philippi. And then in our passage this morning, they're traveling from Caesarea Philippi and through Galilee to Capernaum. Look at chapter 10, verse 32. It says, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. All three times that Jesus foretells of his death and resurrection, we have this interesting detail that Jesus is with his disciples and they're traveling from one place 
to the next. Why does Mark want us to know that? Why does that mean anything to Mark, and why should that mean anything to us? Well, I've got three, three kind of thoughts that, that I, I thought of as I, as I thought about this, this the way that, that Mark does this. If you notice that, that each time that they're traveling, and it also specifies that it's just Jesus and his disciples. If you noticed, in all the passages, Mark makes it clear that even though there may have been other people around, Jesus brought the twelve to himself. This is a very private and this is a very intimate conversation that Jesus is about to have with his disciples. All three times he's foretelling his death and resurrection and he's telling it only to the twelve. The twelve disciples that he has hand-chosen to follow after him. That he's teaching them everything he knows. Why is this? Well, there's three things that I think we can see from, from the way that Mark tells us this. The first is that Jesus is not seeking fame or notoriety because of his signs and miracles. Jesus is not seeking fame and notoriety because of his signs and his miracles. Now, we live in a, in a somewhat of a culture that, that we all want some sort of fame and notoriety. We, we all want to be noticed. I was talking to my pastor, Josh, in, in Kentucky just last week, and, and I told him that I have the opportunity to preach at this church that means so much to me. And, and one of the first things I said to him was, man, there is such a temptation to get up in the pulpit and to try and impress. Because there are faces throughout this congregation that means so much to me. And it's, it's a, an evil desire and a temptation of mine that, that when I come back and that when I preach, that I would impress you. That you would think highly of me. That's a temptation. And we all struggle with that temptation in some way, shape, or form. It may not be the same. It may look a little different. But truly, all of us, if we're honest with ourselves, we love recognition. We love when our boss at work gives us that little star award and says, hey, everyone gather around. I want you to know how great of a job Little Joey did. We seem to like that notoriety. And so it's easy for us to be one way in front of the masses in a very different way when we're, when we're at our most private setting with our most close friends. Those are the situations where our guard is typically let down. We, we kind of start to really say the things that are on our hearts. And that's when we get ourselves into trouble. Maybe you're here this morning and you've put on a really good face. And everyone sitting around you thinks that you've got it all together, that things are going great, that you're the nicest, sweetest, kindest person they've ever met. But as soon as you get home, or as soon as you get to lunch, your conversation quickly turns to, can you believe how much makeup she was wearing this morning? She looked ridiculous. And real quickly, our true heart is exposed. What are we really thinking? What are we really wanting it tends to be exposed when we are in the, our, our most intimate settings with our closest friends. And what we see here with Jesus and his 12 disciples is that he's not at all trying to put on a face as he's doing these signs and miracles, as he's raising people from the dead, as he's feeding 5,000 people, as he's casting out demons. Jesus is not doing that so that other people will go and tell how awesome and great he is. As a matter of fact... If you read the Gospels often, you'll begin to notice that oftentimes when Jesus performs a, a miracle or a sign, he often tells people, don't be going and telling what I've done for you. We just saw that as they're coming down from the mountain in chapter 9, I, I mentioned it, uh, that Jesus is having this conversation with Peter, James, and John. He says, don't say anything about this until after the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Why does Jesus not want people to say things when they experience his signs and miracles? Because that's not what the ministry of Jesus is about. The ministry of Jesus is not about the signs and the miracles. It's not about the fact that he is able to feed those who don't have food. It's not about the fact that he is able to heal those who are paralyzed from birth. It's not about the fact that he can do whatever he wants. And we see that in these private conversations with Jesus and his disciples. He brings them in, and we see his true heart. He's not seeking fame. He's not seeking notoriety. As a matter of fact, 
What he's doing is my second point. He's revealing to the disciples his true purpose in his ministry. Jesus is revealing to the disciples his true purpose of his coming. Three times Jesus foretells of his death and resurrection. I think it's abundantly obvious that what Jesus is doing is revealing to his disciples that the purpose for me coming to earth, the purpose that I have come, the purpose that I was born of a virgin, that I have lived a perfect sinless life, life obedient to the law, the purpose for all of it is my death and resurrection. That's the reason Jesus came. Not just to feed the 5,000, not just to raise people from the dead, not just to heal your sick and diseased people. It's his death and resurrection. And let me tell you, it can be real easy to proclaim Jesus minus his death and resurrection. It can be real easy for us in our workplaces to be telling people about Jesus and to be telling them how, how gracious he is and how merciful he is and how awesome he is and how great of a teacher he was in the Bible. But if we neglect to tell them that Jesus died on the cross and was raised again to new life, we've missed the point. We've told a false Jesus. Because Jesus is revealing to his disciples that the true purpose in him coming is his death and resurrection. This is what he wants his disciples to know. This is why he tells people when he performs a sign or a miracle for them, don't go telling people what I've done. Because I don't want word spreading that I'm just a healer or that I'm just a feeder or that I'm just whatever. He says, there will come a time when you will be going and you will be telling, but you will be telling of my death and resurrection. But thirdly, I want us to notice that Jesus is making the best use of the time. Jesus is making the best use of the time. And I don't have to labor this point, but time flies doesn't it? We all know that. I was just talking with, with someone this morning and thinking back, 2007 was the first time I stepped foot in this church. That was 10 years ago. That was 10 years ago. 2010 is when I left to move to Kentucky. I was only here for three years. That was seven years ago. Feels like yesterday. Last month, as Tony said, our, our little baby, little baby boy Graham, he turned one. And in the months leading up to February 8th, and even in the weeks since February 8th, Sam and I have had countless conversations of, how is he turning one already? We just had him. I remember being at the hospital. I remember uh, all the, the craziness that happened that night. We're driving to the hospital at 3 in the morning, and, and there he is. And I remember that like it was yesterday. Where has the time gone? And if we're not careful, time flies like that, and we can look back and quickly see that we've wasted it. That we have not used our time wisely. We have not invested in the things that are worth investing in. But Jesus is, is sure to use his time wisely. You think about this, as they're traveling from one place to the next, it seems like, you know, probably not a whole lot is going to be happening in that time frame. Usually the big things that happen in the life of Jesus are when he is at some certain place and he meets some certain person and he has this encounter or, or he performs this miracle or whatever, and those tend to be the big things in Jesus' ministry. But what Mark wants us to notice is that even in the times where Jesus is simply traveling from one place to the next, he's not just wasting that time. He's not just shooting the breeze with his disciples about what's going on in the sports world. Jesus is pulling his disciples together and having life-altering conversations with them. Jesus is making the absolute best use of the time. Are you? All of us have the same 24 hours in a day. How are you using your time? Are you using it wisely to, to tell others of Jesus? Are you using those few moments you have with your neighbor to tell them that you believe in Jesus and what he has done in your life? 
Or are we wasting that time? There's another thing that all three of these passages of Jesus foretelling his death and resurrection have in common. You may have noticed it as we read it, but in all three of these, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. In chapter 8, we see Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected. In our passage this morning, Mark 9 They went on from there, they passed through Galilee, and he was teaching them, saying that the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. And again, in chapter 10, they're on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus began to tell them what was to happen. He said, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests. It's interesting that Jesus uses this designation, Son of Man. If you do any kind of research on, on Son of Man, you'll quickly find out that, for the most part, it's a poetic way of saying human. It's used in the Old Testament, specifically in the book of Ezekiel, over 90 times just to refer to Ezekiel by name. Ezekiel is called the Son of Man, so it's used almost in, in a sense to, to say that, that this is name, but also it's used uh, in, in the Psalms to refer to humankind, to man. Simply, what it means is you are the offspring of human. You're a son of man. It's a, it's a nice poetic way of saying we are human. This, son of man, was Jesus' favorite terminology for himself. In the New Testament, it occurs 88 times. All but five times in the New Testament that we see son of man, it's coming from the mouth of Jesus. Or it's recorded by the author as coming from the mouth of Jesus. That's a lot. 83 times Jesus is referring to himself as son of man. So what does that mean? Well, I think obviously we can understand that means Jesus is is alluding to his humanity. He is fully man. We need that because we need a man to stand in our place. And Jesus is that. He is fully man. He is the son of man. But there's also a deeper meaning. And what I think we see here and what Mark is trying to do and what Jesus is doing by using this terminology is he's quietly saying to his disciples, he who has ears to hear, listen to what I'm saying. He who has eyes to see, notice the way that I'm speaking. If you look with me back at uh, Daniel chapter 7, keep your finger in Mark. We're going to go to Daniel chapter 7. I want to read two verses. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel is receiving a vision. And what we see in this vision is one like a son of man. And so I want to read that. It's going to be verses 13 and 14. Daniel chapter 7 verse 13 says this. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So here, in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has this vision of one like a son of man who is a very glorious individual. This is a very high and lifted up being. This is not just an ordinary man. He says here that one came down out of the clouds of heaven like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. If you read up before this, you understand that the Ancient of Days is God. And now, Daniel in his vision is saying, there's one like a son of man who's being presented before God, and look what is given to him. He is given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. Who does that sound like? Jesus. Notice also, his dominion is an everlasting dominion. It does not come to an end. It's eternal. It shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that will not be destroyed. This is Jesus. 
Jesus is the one presented before the Ancient of Days. Jesus is the one who receives dominion which will never end, a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And Jesus is the one whom all peoples, nations, and languages will serve him. And so when Mark tells us, when he records the conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples, that he's referring to himself as the Son of Man, Jesus, in a way, is saying, listen, notice the Old Testament was pointing towards me. I am the Son of Man. I'm the one that will receive a kingdom. I'm the one whom all peoples, nations, and languages will serve me forever. You see, I think if we've been in church for a long time, if we've been reading our Bibles for a long time, we sometimes can get into a rut of just reading and and really not thinking a whole lot about what we've read. I'll be honest, the first few times that I read this passage and, and I read over Son of Man, I didn't really think much of it. Yeah, I've seen that before. That sounds biblical. That's good. But church, let's not miss glorious proclamation in seemingly mundane phrases like Son of Man. Jesus is proclaiming something glorious to his disciples, and Mark has preserved that for us. Mark wants us, as readers of his gospel, to connect the dots, to understand that Jesus was telling his disciples all along, I am the Son of Man from Daniel 7. I will receive the kingdom. All peoples, nations, and languages will serve me. We can quickly miss that if we we aren't reading carefully. Now all that is just free. Now we're going to get to to the real meat of this passage. And I titled this sermon, Jesus Knows, Jesus Cares. Because really I think what we see here in this passage is is exactly what Jesus knows. We get a, an, in, an insight into what, his, what he knows. And, and also, I hope to show you through what he knows, we get to see a little bit of how he cares. So let's look back at our passage. Let's read this again. So they went on from there. They passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. They will kill him. Now again, I think we can get real familiar with our Bibles and just simply read over a phrase like this. And I think one of the disadvantages for us, especially if you've been around church for a long time, I've read the end of the gospel. I know what happens. This doesn't seem like this huge revelation from Jesus. Yeah, I know that you're going to die. And I know that you're going to rise from the dead. Not a big deal, Jesus. But try and put yourself in the shoes of the disciples. All right? They are living this firsthand. They don't have the benefit of having already read the end of the story. Here's this guy who has called them from their profession, from everything that they've ever known, and said, follow me. And they give up everything to follow Jesus. And now he's traveling with them. This is the second time. And he says, guys, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They're going to kill him. Now, if you recall the first time that Jesus told him this, you know, remember what Peter did? No, Jesus, that is, that's a bad idea. Let me tell you what, we've got better plans, all right? We can do this a better way. And what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking about the things of God, but the things of man. So clearly, the disciples are understanding that Jesus is talking about himself when referring to the, the Son of Man, that he's going to die, but then be ro- risen from the grave. And Jesus is telling them now a second time. And I wonder if we, ever, if we ever sit here and we read this in the Bible and we're just in awe. Jesus just told his disciples that he's going to die. Not just that he's going to die, but that he's going to be delivered into the hands of men and they're going to kill him. Can you imagine what the disciples must have been thinking? They're probably having conversations among themselves like, wait a second, we gave up everything to follow him. What are we going to do if he dies? What are we going to do? How how can we stop this from happening? This is not good. 
But yet we so quickly read this and think, hmm, that sounds right, I've read that in the end. I want us to think about what Jesus knows. It says he's teaching his disciples, and he says to them, the Son of Man will be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. Listen to me. Jesus knows that he's going to die. Jesus knows the way that he's going to die. Now, I am by no means real experienced in ministry. Uh, I'm young in ministry. I understand that. But I have had the opportunity to do a funeral. And I was talking with my pastor, Josh, about, you know, well, how do you structure a funeral? You know, kind of how, how do you go about this? I'd never done this before. This is all new to me. And, and one of the things that he told me is he said, well, well, number one, you have to address the elephant in the room, and that's death. And he said the best way to do that is, is to say two things about death. You can say that death is certain. We all know that we're going to die. That is our ultimate fate. We know that. The death rate is holding strong at 100%. But he says you can also say that death is uncertain. We don't know when we're going to die. We don't have any, any idea about when that moment will come. Now, think about that. That's a good thing, isn't it? I think all of us this morning could say that we are happy and that we're excited that we don't know the moment at which we will die. We don't know the way at which we will die. Praise God for that. Because if we knew that information, our whole life would be nothing but misery, wouldn't it? We would walk around with self-pity all day long. Well, you know, yeah, it's a great day, but well, done the day closer to me dying. Getting hit by that Mack truck at 100 miles an hour. See, that would not be good for us. But what we see here in these passages where Jesus foretells of his death and resurrection is not only that he knows he's going to die. We all know that. Jesus knows how he's going to die. He says, I will be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill me. If you look at what he says in chapter 10, he even gives them more specific details. He says, they will condemn him to death. They'll deliver him to the Gentiles. They'll mock him. They'll spit on him. They'll flog him and then they'll kill him. We get the idea that Jesus knows exactly what's going down and when it's going down. There's a, a pastor and, and scholar that I really enjoy listening to. His name is Dr. Ligon Duncan. And he was teaching out of the book of Matthew, I believe, on a, on a similar passage right leading up to Jesus' death. And he, he gave this story as an illustration. And I thought it was fantastic, and so I'm going to use it. He said, think about this. Let's say that all of you here this morning felt the call to missions. And so you pack up your family, you pack up your kids, you pack up everything that you know, and you head out to the mission field. And you go to an unreached people group, a group that's never been engaged with the gospel. And you're there and you're working for 15 years and you see some people getting saved and some people repenting of their sins. But something happens after 15 years. And for some reason, these people that you're working with, they snap. And they turn against you. And they kill your spouse. They kill your kids. You narrowly escape. Now, let's say you knew that before you left. Would you still go? I think all of us would probably say, no way. No way. Now think about this. Jesus knew not only that he was going to die, but he knew the very way that it would happen. He knew the very moment that it would happen. And he still came. Can you imagine walking around knowing the very moment, the very method of which your death is going to occur? What a weight that would be to carry on your shoulders. 
It's no wonder Isaiah tells us that Jesus was a man acquainted with grief and sorrows. But there's, there's another thing I want you to think about when we think about what Jesus knows. We understand, and, and this passage makes it very clear, that, that Jesus knew the way in which he's going to die. He knew the time at which he was going to die. But there's something else that Jesus knows. Jesus knows us. Jesus knows every last person in this room. Jesus knows every last person that's in the city of Gulfport. And Jesus knows what all of you were doing on Friday night. And Jesus knows what all of you were doing at every moment of your life. You see, as I look back over my life, I see that God has done a lot to bring me to this point where I'm at right now. And I can look back, and and there's a lot of things in my life that are incredibly shameful. Not proud of, not happy that I, I did that or that I experienced that. And all of us, if we consider our own life, we can have to say the exact same thing. There's so much in our past that we are, are regretting, that we hate that we did that. You see, Jesus knows every moment at which you sought satisfaction in anything besides him. Jesus knew every moment at which you would choose satisfaction in the images on the screen over him. Jesus knew every moment at which you would seek satisfaction in alcohol or drugs over him. Jesus knew every moment in which you would seek satisfaction in money and and notoriety and, and praise over satisfaction in him. But let me tell you something. Jesus still came. I've had conversations with people that tell me, you know, I, church really isn't for me. God really isn't for me. Jesus really isn't for me. If he knew what I have done, he wouldn't be interested. If God knew all the things that I've done and all the ways in which I have failed or that I have sinned, no way would he be interested in me. To which you can reply, he did know. And he still came. He still came. And what Hebrews tells us is that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Because Jesus knew all the way, the whole time, that your only hope for salvation is him going to the cross on your behalf. You cannot handle that your own. You have no way to be right with God apart from Jesus going to the cross for you. So for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Stop thinking that you have sinned so much that God is not interested in you. God knew all of your sins, all of your shortcomings, every way that you have ever failed him. And yet he still, as Philippians tells us, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant And was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For you, knowing what you've done. There's a passage in John that is one of my favorites. It's John chapter 13. And in John chapter 13, what you read about is Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And I was teaching through John to our youth a while ago, we, we finished it. But I, I got to John 13 the week before Easter of last year. And so I was having a conversation with Josh, our pastor, and I said, you know what? Uh, we're, we're, we're about to get to where Jesus washes the disciples' feet. And it's kind of a really cool passage. I love it. I'm super excited to preach it. And he says, you should wash the kids' feet. The kids' feet. And I said, I never, never really thought about that. And he said, you know what? If you did... They will never, ever forget it. And so I said, all right, let's do it. So I didn't tell any of the students. They had no idea it was coming. They show up Wednesday night, and here we are. We got some buckets of water and some rags, and I I start teaching on John chapter 13 about Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And sure enough, I said, all right, guys, take your shoes and your socks off. We're washing your feet. And we had a room full of creeped out kids. But I tell you what, they never forgot. 
But what we see here is Jesus humbling himself in such a way that he's getting down on his hands and his knees and he's washing the feet of his disciples. One of the most humiliating things that he could have done. Jesus humbles himself and does that. You know what happens right after that in John chapter 13? Jesus is breaking bread with his disciples and he says, one of you is going to betray me. And so they're, they're asking, well, who is it? He says, the one that I give this morsel to after I dip it in the cup. And he gives it to Judas. And then John tells us, immediately Satan entered him. And Jesus says, Judas, what you're about to do, do quickly. And Judas leaves. Did you notice that sequence? Jesus washes the disciples' feet. Who's Judas? He's a disciple. He's one of the 12. He's there in that room. He's having Jesus wash his feet. What does Jesus know about Judas? He's going to sell him out for 30 pieces of silver. He knows it. And what does he do? He gets down on his hands and knees and he washes Judas' feet. Why? Why does he wash Judas' feet and then say, one of you is going to betray me. You see, Jesus is not thinking about, well, this person has sinned in so much that, that I can't really save them. This person is so bad that they're kind of beyond my reach. What Jesus is saying is no matter what you've done, no matter what you're going to do, I have come to serve you. I have come to lay down my life so that you may have life. We see that with Judas. Jesus knows the whole time that Judas is going to sell him out. But what does he do? He humbles himself. He gets down on his hands and knees and washes his feet. Look at the way in which Jesus is pursuing sinners. Jesus is desiring that all people would be saved. Do you feel that way? Do you understand that Jesus knows in such a way that he, he's pursuing after you? That he sent his son, Jesus, to die on the cross for you? Knowing all that you've done, knowing all that you're going to do, he still came. You see, Jesus' knowledge should help us understand even more his love. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Knowing the sins of all the people that he would forgive knowing all the ways in which they've failed him, knowing that he is going to go to the cross, knowing what they're going to do to him, knowing the very moment at which it's going to happen, he came. That whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. I hope that you all think and consider what Jesus knows. But not just that. I want you to see how what Jesus knows also shows us how he cares. In verse 30, it tells us, 31 rather, that Jesus was teaching his disciples. He's teaching his disciples. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. When he is killed, after three days, he will rise. And now look at verse 32. We see the response of the disciples. It says, but they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. Now we've seen the way, or what Jesus knows. I want us now to see the way in which he cares. In all three of these passages where Jesus foretells of his death and resurrection... He's telling this to the disciples. He's teaching them. He wants them to know what's going to happen. Why? Why does Jesus care that his disciples know what's going to happen? Well, why do we teach anyone anything? To prepare you for something. When I met with Josh before I did that first funeral, I asked him, what do I need to know? What, what do I need to do? How do I prepare for this? I've never done a funeral before. I've been to one. I've seen you do one. Help me get ready. And what did Josh do? 
He began to prepare me. He taught me. So that when that moment came, I wouldn't be lost or, or, or for loss of words or would not know what to do. But he prepared me because he cares for me. He wanted to see me have success. He wanted to see me succeed. And we do that all the time. I hope you're doing that with your children. You're teaching them because you want to see them succeed in life. You don't just say, well, I know something that's really going to be helpful for you, but I'm going to let you figure it out on your own. Maybe there's times we do that. But for the most part, with our children, we want to teach them. We want to prepare them. We want them to be equipped so that they don't just go out in life and, and fall on their face. And Jesus is fully aware that when he dies and goes into the grave, this is the very moment at which his disciples are most vulnerable. I said before, they've left everything to follow Jesus. They've given up everything. It's not like they can just go back and pick up their old job and things will be fine. You know, well, that was fun for three years, but I guess it didn't work out. They don't really have that option. And Jesus knows and Jesus is fully aware that when he goes to the cross and that when he is crucified, it is the moment at which his disciples are most prone to scatter, most prone to wander. Our leader is now dead. What do we do? Run for your life. But Jesus knows that this is the most pivotal moment in his disciples' lives. And so what we see him doing is beginning to prepare them. He's teaching them. That way when it comes, when that moment occurs, they're not going to be off guard. They're not going to have no idea what to do or they're not going to have any category for, ah, I didn't know this was coming. Jesus is preparing his disciples. And notice how they respond. Verse 32. They did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Isn't that us oftentimes? We see God at work in our lives and we don't have any idea what he's doing. It doesn't make any sense. The disciples understand that because Jesus is telling them that he's going to die and then rise again. And the response is, well, first time Peter says, no, nah, Jesus, that's a bad idea. Let's not do that. And then the second time, here they are. They don't understand but they've learned from Peter and they're afraid to ask him. You see, oftentimes, God is at work in our lives and at the moment, we don't realize it. We don't understand what God is doing. We don't know how this is working out for our good. It just doesn't seem to make sense. Last night, I was here for a birthday party and it was really neat to, to just kind of walk around the church a little bit to kind of see some things and and I saw a classroom over in the East Sanctuary. Classroom 111. And I had these memories that just came flushing back. Of in 2007, when I first began coming, getting involved in the men's ministry. And the men used to meet every Sunday afternoon in this classroom. Classroom 111. And they would stand in a circle and read the Bible, and then we'd stand up and we'd hold hands and we would pray about all kinds of different things. And at the moment, I'll be honest, the very first time I went, I was a little creeped out. Like, I don't really want to hold your hand. That's weird. And I also was thinking, let's see, I'm 21. The closest person to my age is probably at least double my age. I don't know if this is going to work out. I don't know if I'm going to fit in here. It was odd. It was strange. I had no idea what God was doing in that moment. But yet, for some reason, I kept coming. Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, I kept coming and kept coming and kept coming. And now, even though I didn't understand it then, as I look back, I see that was such a moment of huge spiritual growth in my life. God was at work in my life long before I ever expected to stand in this pulpit, beginning to shape me and prepare me for this day. And he's doing that in your life right now. You see, thankfully, we don't know what the future holds. We don't know what's going to happen. And that's a good thing. 
But God is at work in our lives right now at this moment. Maybe we don't understand what's happening. Maybe we don't get it. It doesn't seem to fit together. But at some point in the future, we will look back and see what God has done in our life and say, wow, God cares for me so much that he was at work in my life years before preparing me for this moment. Last month, a friend of mine who pastors a church in South Carolina, they, they had the two-year anniversary of the passing away of their 17-month-old daughter. And he's a, he's a good friend of mine. And so I sent him a text on that day, and I said, hey, man, I know, I know today is probably a hard day. I'm, I'm praying for you. And I called him later that week, and we, we talked. And, and I'll never forget, last September, Sam and I had a chance to go down there and visit them. And they sense they have an, another baby girl, and they're pregnant with another boy. And so we went down with Graham, and we got to spend a week with them, which was really great. And so we got to go to the beach and because, you know, we've got all these car seats in the car, we can't all ride together. So we're riding separate. So I'm riding with my friend Andrew, and Sam's riding with his wife down to the beach. And we were having a conversation. And I just, I just asked him, I said, Andrew, how did, how did you deal with, how did you process the death of your little baby girl? I think in around six months, she was diagnosed with leukemia. They fought that for a long time. She actually, the, the leukemia went into remission, but the, the treatment took such a toll on her heart that, that she ended up dying of heart failure. That's 17 months. And I will never forget my friend's response. He said, to be honest with you, if I didn't know God deeply, I would have walked away. I would have said, forget you, God. You're not good. You're not gracious. You're not loving why would you take my baby girl? He said, but God had been at work in my life long before. And even during the sickness and even leading up to her death, he said, I, I saw God at work doing so many things in my life and in the life of my wife that prepared us for that day, that prepared us for that moment. He says, I saw very clearly God's gentle care for us, even in the hardest moment of our life. Do you know this morning that Jesus knows everything about you? Do you know this morning that he cares for you? Do you know that he came to die on the cross for your sins? I hope you know that he's a good Savior. Jesus shows us here the great care that he has for his disciples. And may we never miss the point or not realize that same care that he has for all of us.